Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I just want to say, I had that song stuck in my head before we even played it. I don't know what the rest of your day is going to be like. Uh, But yes, we're going to talk about sleep today. So usually when we, you know, a public radio show talks about sleep, they're going to talk about third shift workers and all the health consequences that uh, seem to attend to people who aren't getting the quote unquote right kind of sleep. Um, And and. Particularly, in particular, third shift workers, warehouse workers, Amazon workers. You know, there are uh, indications that diabetes, cancer, heart problems, obesity, all of those may be trailing along after the person who isn't sleeping. Again, the quote, right, unquote, way. We're not doing that show. Uh, we are actually going to talk a little bit about where, I, where our ideas of sleep come from uh, and whether or not they map very well onto um, actual human life. Uh, and we're also, towards the end, we got to start it on this. <laughs> I read this piece in Lit Hub uh, about the fact that bears don't hibernate anymore. It turns out, by the way, hibernating and sleeping are not the same thing. But um, because bears, first of all, because of climate change, but also because bears just live near us. <laughs> so they've started to sleep uh, uh, or hibernate kind of, you know, in a way that reflects or not hibernate just because we're just doing stuff all the time and we're putting food out for them to eat all the time. And so why hibernate? Anyway, that's to come. Uh, right now, we're going to begin with Matthew Wolfmeyer, uh, a professor of science and technology studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York. Uh, he's the author of The Slumbering Masses, Sleep, Medicine, and Modern American Life. So first of all, welcome to our show. Uh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So there's this kind of sense, I think, you know, an implied sense that, you know, in Rousseau's pure state of nature, uh, everybody sleeps a certain amount of time and they probably sleep it in one block or, or or something. There's this kind of idea that if we weren't 21st century schizoid man, we would be sleeping better and differently and quote unquote the right way. Tell us a little bit about where that idea comes from and and who gave it to us. Sure. Um, so it it, uh, it it comes from a variety of different sources, and at least in the context of the United States, it's a set of ideas that really develop over the course of the 19th century. So <clears throat> for a long time, you can imagine people lived in relatively agricultural settings um, and they were able to sleep without a lot of attention to a clock and with the rise of industrialization and urbanization people moved from those agricultural settings into more urban spaces 
where they were working in factories. And many of those factories depended on the existence of natural light in order for people to be able to work. And so that's why old factories have a ton of windows in them. And people would start the workday around dawn and end the workday around dusk. And um, that meant that they were staying awake uh, throughout the day and then being exhausted, they would collapse into sleep at night and sleep through the night so that could go back to work the next day. But previous to that, people were napping throughout the day. They could break their sleep up at night into two or more periods. And there's a lot of evidence from the historical record that people slept in a kind of biphasic fashion, meaning that they slept in two periods rather than one consolidated period. Yeah. And, um, and I do want to say the king, and, of the, the king of that theory is Roger Eckert. Uh, by the way, whoever borrowed yep. my copy of At Day's Close by Robert Roger Eckert, please bring it back. I don't can't remember who I lent it to, but I can't find it. Uh, he's been on this show, actually, and he's one of the people who sort of noticed that in the Middle Ages, that biphasic thing seemed to be happening. People would sleep for a few hours. They'd wake up. They'd do stuff. They'd write a letter. They'd make love. They'd do whatever. There would be a period of kind of limited activity, but not inactivity, and then they'd sleep some more. So that's right. like another way to sleep. Again, it might not be the, quote, yeah. right, unquote, uh, way to sleep. Yeah, but, you know, it's functional. It allows you to check on your kids, check on animals, make sure that the house isn't on fire um, if it's warmed by a wood-burning stove, right? Um, so, you know, people used biphasic sleep. Um, and, you know, napping throughout the day as needed uh, is, you know, I'm a huge proponent of napping. But over the course of the 19th century, because of the needs of American industrialization, there was really this push toward having a consolidated nightly sleep. Um, and that enrolled a bunch of different people from physicians to politicians to scientists to pastors to get people to really think that sleeping anything other than in a consolidated way was a form of illness or it was immoral, right? And so by the turn of the 20th century, when modern sleep science really starts to um, take off, all of those assumptions about consolidated sleep are really baked in to the science and medicine. And so if you look at, you know, public health recommendations in the 1920s, it's all about consolidated sleep, right? That like the idea of napping for adults has totally disappeared. There's no such thing as biphasic sleep. It's just insomnia if you're awake in the middle of the night. And that's what we've really inherited. So by the 19 60s and 70s that had totally intensified into the way that we were thinking about sleep. And by the 90s, with the invention of a lot of the modern sleep drugs, that's the model that everybody is using, that we should be sleeping in a consolidated way at night, not sleeping during the day, and that we're kind of shooting for about eight hours of sleep, right? Yeah. And so the, I, I'm also wondering what we know historically about sleep configurations and, and arrangements and accommodations specifically. And actually later in the show, just as an, you know, an, a musical intro to a segment, we're going to play Kurt Elling's adaptation of, of Walt Whitman's poem, The Sleepers. And Whitman, always mm -hmm. you know, kind of radical, is describing – he's – narrates uh, himself walking around and looking in windows and seeing how people sleep. And there are a lot of different ways and a lot of different groups of people <laughs> and a lot of different clusterings of people. We once again have kind of settled on this idea that, you know, it will probably most often be a couple in bed. Their kids will be someplace else. 
Um, once again, that feels like maybe something that, that doesn't necessarily obtain all through history as just priced into the idea of sleep. Yeah, it's very modern. Um, you know, a lot of families shared beds uh, up until the turn of the 20th century. Um, you know, it really depended on the generation of a lot of wealth for every member of a family to have their own room and to have their own bed. Um, and so, you know, bed sharing is something that a lot of societies do, but Americans don't. Um, and, uh, and if we look kind of cross-culturally and historically, you can see that it's kind of an accident that Americans sleep the way that they do, um, that a lot of societies continue to share beds with kids up to, through adolescence. Um, a lot of societies don't have separate rooms for everybody, right? Um, but the the challenge that we face is really the historical record. And um, Roger Ekerch's work, other people's work has really focused on what people have written down about their sleep or the sleep of other people. And that's really the only evidence that we have or ever will have about how people slept over the last tens of thousands of years, right? So that historical record is sparse and kind of shaky, but it shows that in the North Atlantic, so a lot of Europe and um, North America, that people slept <clears throat> in relatively biphasic fashion um, and that around the, um, uh, um, oh, I'm losing words right now. Uh, you haven't, in, you, you haven't enough sleep. You're sleep deprived. You're yeah, losing right. words. In equatorial societies, people tend to nap more, you know, that they have a short period of sleep during the night. And then because it's hot during the day, they take a nap during that hot period, right? And so, you know, there, there's a lot of variation in how humans sleep now and how humans have slept. Um, and it's really hard to say that there's one way that humans have evolved to sleep or that's the right way to sleep. Yeah. Um, By the way, I'm, were, I'm pretty sure that we're all living in equatorial societies at this point. Uh, it's like really hot during the day. <laughs> so get used to that siesta. Yeah. Um, so, um, sure. so, yeah, and, and, and I think there's another overlay here. And I was particularly interested to learn that you were uh, in Finland for uh, like a year or something uh, because mm -hmm. there's another overlay here in the U.S., and that is school. School is organized a certain way. I mean, yeah. our, our so our work lives are organized a certain way, and that way means we get to sleep X amount of time, and uh, under those circumstances, it just seems to work better for work. But there's also school, and school is regimented and organized a certain way, and there are sports at school in the afternoon, and a lot yeah. of that seems to drive another form of sleep scheduling, at least in terms of what time we wake up, Right. Yeah, that, you know, our sleep is really structured by the institutions that we interact with, right? And um, I wouldn't wake up nearly as early as I do if it wasn't for kids who had to be at school at 7.50 in the morning, right? And have to be awake for an hour before that. And it's not the best time for them, and it's not the best time for me, but we've decided as a society and in our school district that that's when elementary-aged kids need to be at school, right? There's a lot of science around changing sleep needs for kids over their development and, you know, more and more attention to how our sleep needs change over our life course from infancy into old age. And one of the challenges that we face is that the institutional times we interact with are really static, right? That like a nine to five workday 
might work for some people at some points in their life, but it might not work for everybody over the course of their whole life, right? Um, and, you know, the pandemic gave people some options around having more flexible work schedules and working from home. And I would be really interested to see if there's been a decrease um, in reported sleep disorders over that period and by people who were able to do that stuff. But for a lot of people, there are not those options. And so we really have to fit our sleep into whatever schedule we're working with, um, which is why a lot of people can't take naps and you know why people probably experience things like insomnia and um, fatigue throughout the day and self-medicate through caffeine and uh, and prescription drugs, right? And so, uh, you know, listening to you talk now and, and just you know preparing for the show, I wound up thinking about uh, actually a kind of legendary Seinfeld episode called "The Nap," and it's all about how George Costanza at his work really does feel like he needs a nap. He eventually, has a carpenter come and alter his desk so that uh, he can sleep under his desk. There's room, uh, and so yeah. that his boss George Steinbrenner won't see him, uh, and that. <laughs> He, he turns out to like that so much he starts sleeping in cupboards and stuff like that at home. But it's kind of it, it's kind of that statement. I mean, every time there's a universal declaration of human rights uh, or workers' rights or anything like that, sleep doesn't really come up on those lists. And the more that you talk, the more I think maybe it should. Maybe it's just sort of a basic aspect uh, of treating a human being like a human being. They should have maybe more sleep options than than, than they do. Yeah, I think that's totally true. That, you know, and this is part of the challenge with the historical record, right? That like sleep is so banal as an experience that people just don't write about it. And unless something goes wrong, people don't pay a lot of attention to it. And it's true with our diets and it's true with just our everyday health, but it's especially true with sleep, you know, that like nobody remarked on it for a really long time. And we kind of take it for granted as just this inevitable function that we all experience and what do we say about it right but um i think the the challenge that george faces in that episode is the kind of moral discourses around <laughs> right sleeping right that like there's some shame associated with being a sleeper who doesn't sleep the way that people think that we should be sleeping right and one of the challenges is that we tend to medicalize what we see as being an aberration, right? So like if you need to take a nap, it's not okay um, morally, and there must be a medical problem that we can treat, right? And getting sleep out of that kind of like moral set of discourses and away from just kind of knee-jerk medicalization is probably the best way we can start to rethink sleep and find better ways to accommodate it in our everyday lives. Yeah, no, it's interesting how loaded the language is that we use about sleep and about each other's sleep. Uh, when I first became involved mm -hmm. with a woman who's my lifetime partner now, uh, she would refer to me in conversations with other people. She would say, he's a bad sleeper. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and on the other hand, she's 
comes from a family where I think a lot of the people in the family are biologically wired to want to sleep until 9 or 9.30. I find that disgusting. <laughs> I, I find that just <laughs> like moral, <laughs> morally offensive. <laughs> what kind of person uh-huh. does that? But but so it's not just that we medicalize it. Like, yeah, you need some Ativan. You need some melatonin. Um, but it's also we pathologize it. Well, I, uh, and right. there was a really fascinating article in The Atlantic a couple of years by a writer, Faith Hill. Uh, it was called The Nocturnal. And it turns out there's like a lot of people, or there's not a lot of people, there's a subset of the human race that wants to work the third shift and doesn't really need a lot of human contact, uh, actually, you know, is pretty happy living in an Edward Hopper painting. Uh, uh, I know Mm -hmm. you you spent a lot of time doing research into people at night in coming off third shifts in late night diners. Uh, You did a period of research where your, your day's kind of your work day ended at 4 a.m. because that's who you were kind mm-hmm. of anthropologically looking at. But there's a way in which if, if that's what you want to do, that can almost seem as pathological. Why doesn't this person want to live the way everybody else does? Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, I've spent a large swaths of my life being nocturnal. And it works for me in ways that it not it's not comfortable for everybody, but it's okay with me. And it, you know, it's really been one of the components of my advocacy that, you know, we should think about how we can organize labor differently so that people can sleep the way that they need and want to sleep, right? That, like, the idea of a nine-to-five workday just doesn't work for everybody. And if the choice is working a regular work shift and needing to medicate yourself or drink a ton of caffeine in order to do so, and then face the consequences of like having to drink a ton of caffeine every day or eat a lot of sugar in order to stay awake or work third shift or second shift and not have to do those things. Like we should find ways to make that possible, both for workers and for students and for everybody else, right? That like building more flexibility into our everyday lives in order to meet the needs that we have is a really critical thing to do. Yeah, and I think at the point that there becomes a pretty large um, industry that's sending a lot of messages uh, about how much you're sleeping and what you need in order to sleep or what you need in order to feel a little perkier, um, it, it gets harder and harder to get closer to our own basic natures. Although I do remember, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a drug called Lunesta, and they had this commercial mm-hmm. with this weird kind of diaphanous moth would fly flying to people. I used to think, that's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. I couldn't sleep if I knew yeah. something like that existed. But there were just a lot of commercials on about this, you know, and commercials exist right. to make you want something that you currently don't have. And that can be a pretty persuasive way of of circulating certain norms. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And really that um, that class of drugs that was developed in the mid to late nineties. And then what really found their ascendancy through the like early two thousands um, made billions of dollars for pharmaceutical companies um, by selling this idea that like, you know, you just need to take a drug in order to sleep better. And, you know, the reality is that for a lot of people who use those drugs, they peter out on their effectiveness pretty quickly and um they have a lot of secondary side effects and so like i think we really you know we 
we buy into the idea that pharmaceuticals will fix our problem when what we really need is closer attention to what we individually need and how those needs can be met by the institutions we interact with. But one of the things that um, they do clinically in order to figure out how people sleep is they let people keep a sleep diary and do something called free running, which is that they just sleep whenever they need to sleep and they wake up whenever they need to wake up and they don't have an alarm clock and you just like keep track of how you're sleeping in the diary. And then after a few days of catching up on lost sleep, your sleep kind of normalizes to yourself and you can see what your actual sleep needs are. And I always tell people that they should try and do that over a vacation period. You know, like if you've got two weeks, just free run with your sleep and see what kind of sleeper you are. Um, because, you know, so often we really don't know. And if left to our own devices, like we can actually see what our appetite for sleep is um, and then use that as a baseline in order to figure out how to organize our lives. You know, with, with the time we have left, and there's so many, many other things I'd love to get into with you, but we should talk a little bit about what happens when people fall asleep when they're not supposed to. So we're, we spend a lot of time telling people, you're supposed to sleep right now. <laughs> you better go sleep right now because now is when you're <laughs> supposed to sleep. But there's the other problem. I mean, anybody who's ever been in a class where the teacher decided to show a movie um, <laughs> the high percentage of people around them who will be asleep. Uh, I used to have a – I used to work for a newspaper where the highest ranking editor uh, loved to go to the theater. and But I would see him you know, at the theater and he would be sprawled across two, sleep, uh, two seats asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, publicly falling asleep in group situations where everybody is supposed to be awake is – there's a lot of stigma that goes along with that. And I know you have some very specific feelings about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I joke with my students that like if they fall asleep in class, that that's the political act on their part, right? That they're protesting whatever is happening in that classroom or whatever the structure of their education is by falling asleep. Because like if they're able to fall asleep in a classroom, it's because their needs aren't being met in some fundamental way, right? And um, and it's a really polite form of protest to just fall asleep. I think it's also true for adults. Like if you're in a meeting and that meeting is not utilizing your time in the most respectful way and sleeping would be a better way to use your time, you should go to sleep, right? That like, if sleeping is better than whatever is happening, you can protest whatever is happening by just going to sleep, right? And there is the kind of moral stigma around it, but uh, I dare you to have a conversation with people uh, after you have fallen asleep about why why you fell, fell asleep in that context, right? Because like that will open up a conversation about needs being met and like the use of time and our expectations of one another. And it just like is a way to puncture all of those assumptions. All right. Well, I'm watching the producer, Lily Tyson, very carefully through the glass to see whether she's protesting uh, how I'm hosting this show. So far, she seems either either <laughs> she's propped herself up in some way or she's awake. But uh, Matthew Wolfmeyer is a professor of science and technology studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Univers- uh, Institute in New York. He's the author of The Slumbering Masses, Sleep Medicine in Modern American Life, among other books. Thank you so much for this conversation. We are going to talk very specifically about non-industrial societies, uh, societies of hunter-gatherers or hunter-horticulturists and how they sleep in the next segment. Dum, 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 dum,
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Noiselessly stepping and stopping, bending with open eyes over the shadows of sleep. Oh, I wish I could play that whole thing for you. That's the thing I was talking about before, Kurt Elling's adaptation uh, of Walt Whitman's poem, The Sleepers. So we're going to talk a little bit about how people sleep. I think there's, once again, this kind of a, a assumption that if we were in our Rousseau-like natural state, uh, we would sleep more uh, or we would at least sleep differently. We would sleep better. But is that really true? How close can we get to our natural state? Here to talk about that and other things is Gandhi Yatish, a human evolutionary ecologist and anthropologist who studies sleep patterns among small-scale subsistence societies. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So from a per- from sort of an evolutionary point of view, it might not make sense to be a deep sleeper, right? If we're evolving on the grasslands of Africa, uh, being deeply asleep <laughs> seems like a really bad idea. Uh, being a little bit more vigilant seems like a good idea, both in terms of predators and you know who might be getting after us, but also what you would refer to, I think, as an opportunity cost, too. You want to be awake when there's a chance to maybe get some food or get something that you, you know, your group desperately needs. So can you say a little bit more about that, about how sleep works for us as a species? Sure. Um- I mean, certainly we we have preconceptions about uh, what we need to do, um, and it seems like deep sleep would be kind of inhibiting of other things that we need to do, and yet we all do it. Um, but if we try to take a step back and, and be aware of our own assumptions of what we're used to and, and take a broader perspective, uh, deep sleep is just something that happens, so we have to choose when we're going to do it. It, there's no law that says it has to even be at night. 
many species are nocturnal and uh, they're awake at night and sleep during the day. And so we think pretty clearly that humans are not like that. Um, but then the question is, well, what is normal? And uh, it, it turns out to be a very uh, messy question to answer because how do you even define what normal is? Uh, I've been spending the better part of the last 10 years or so spending um, a couple years at least in the field. And I've been working in Bolivia, Namibia, and Tanzania uh, with the Chimane, the San, and the Hadza groups. And all three groups, for those who are not familiar, they are called subsistence societies, um, which would include hunter-gatherers. Um, the San and Hadza are hunter-gatherers. Uh, the Chimane also have small-scale horticulture, which is uh, gardening with hand tools, basically, as opposed to having cows or tractors. And in these groups, uh, in contrast to what Matthew was saying in the first segment, uh, there are very few institutions that people are interacting with on a daily basis. Uh, they don't even really have money that they're, you know, uh, interacting with on a daily basis. Their full-time job is getting food. Um, you could say, if you were to try to put it into the language that we're familiar with. So in that context where you don't have a boss telling you you have to show up at a certain time, you don't have school, uh, you don't have any of these social obligations, when should you sleep? And that's kind of the context where I've been doing my research. And the reason that I've picked these groups or that we've picked these groups, that people in my field work in these situations, is that... The ancestors of these groups, just like our ancestors, would have also been living in a subsistence type of society where they're not working to get money to buy food. They're just working to get food. And when you're living in the natural environment, trying to forage, trying to feed yourself, you do need to sleep. So how do people do it today? Uh, we can try to consider this a reasonable place to start when we try to extrapolate and guess backwards through time what people may have been doing, especially since so many of these social institutions that are so important for affecting sleep today, we know have only been around for a few decades, a few hundred years. Maybe if you want to be really generous, you'd say a few thousand years. But human history has lasted uh, as a species, biologically speaking, for 300,000 years. Mm. I mean, we're, we're just dealing with an entirely different scale. And so we're, we're really trying to take a lot of step backs and peel off the layers of the onion to, you know, understand sleep in a more deeper level here. So let's look at something that's a fairly recent advent, and that would be artificial lighting, electric lighting, whatever we want to call it. That's 100, 150 years old, maybe, uh, unless you count gaslighting, maybe a little bit older. But um, so the societies that you're looking, as, looking at, as I understand it, do not have electric lights. Uh, it gets dark <laughs> at a certain point. And, and, uh, but so one might assume, okay, so they probably go to sleep, I don't know, an hour after it gets dark or something. Uh, that's not what they do, right? That's right. People tend to, if I can try to paint a picture for you, uh, you work all day, you're collecting food, you bring it back home, which is where your children are running around, your, your parents might be there, your cousins, your uncles and aunts, um, kids of all ages, they're all there. And you've got a couple of central hearths, typically one per household, whatever a household means in that context, I don't want to get into it. And someone starts cooking generally close to dusk. 
with all these foods that have been collected. And as it gets darker and darker, people stop what they're doing. They come sit by the fire. Uh, they wait for the food to finish because everybody's hungry. Uh, and then as it's ready to eat, they all eat. It's already dark by the time they're finished eating. They continue to sit by the fire, chatting, what have you. And then as people get tired, they kind of peel off on their own and they leave the conversation to go to bed. So essentially what ends up happening is people are going to bed about three hours after sunset. Um, and then they tend to sleep throughout the night, but they do frequently wake up. Uh, they're interrupted by any number of things. Um, some things seem exotic, such as, you know, the sound of lions roaring or hyenas or, uh, you know, uh, even just dogs uh, for those who have them. But others are very relatable, such as babies that are hungry or babies that need a change or whatever. Uh, these are all things that people have to deal with, even in these contexts. And they wake up maybe once or twice a night. They deal with whatever they have to deal with. And then they wake up to start their day generally around dawn. So the study participants also are wearing, as I understand it, small wristband devices that could track sleeping and waking times and, and light exposure. Um First of all, how, how so you just described a pattern, uh, three hours after sundown, waking up before dawn. How, mu how many hours of sleep do, does that add, add up to typically? Typically, that adds up to between six and seven hours. Uh, the figure that we typically cite is 5.7 to 7.1 hours of actual sleep. Um, so we're definitely in the range of what people are doing in the West. But just as you interpret these numbers of six or seven hours of sleep per night, I just like to add the caveat for context that we normally colloquially say, I went to sleep at 11 o'clock and I woke up at six o'clock when really you went to bed at 11 o'clock and you got out of bed at six o'clock. And it's a typical part of, it's a normal part of the sleep cycle to spend a certain amount of time awake, which is generally about an hour. So uh, if you were thinking that you slept from 11 to six and you say that's seven hours of sleep, that's actually more like seven hours in bed, which is maybe more like six hours of sleep. And right. so that's the context I would give you for interpreting six or seven hours of sleep per night for these people in the field, um, because it's it's almost the same. Right. And as I understand it, those that six to seven hours fluctuates a little bit with the seasons, six hours in the summer when there's more light, uh, maybe seven hours in the winter when there's less. But, you know, that's this is all kind of radical uh, weighed against what we're just told all the time, which is that eight hours of sleep is the minimum amount that a human being needs uh, to avoid other kinds of health consequences. Uh, and yet, and, and I think the underlying that is an assumption, well, wow, if I didn't, you know, stay up watching succession uh, all night and then I didn't have to get up so early in the morning to go to my stupid job, blah, 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 I'd be getting eight hours of sleep. It doesn't really sound like we're necessarily wired for that eight hours. Well, I, I would say that in terms of giving people recommendations to get enough sleep, if you told them that they needed to get eight hours of sleep and they went to bed at 11, they woke up at seven, um, they would probably end up getting about seven hours of sleep uh, in those eight hours in bed. And public health research suggests that about seven hours tends to be associated with the best health outcomes. So in terms of public policy, uh, it's very difficult to make recommendations and they should not be ever interpreted as a one-size-fits-all type of solution. 
but they are generally reasonable in my opinion. Um, but I would say that we, you know, what I've described is a common pattern, but people don't follow the common pattern every night. Uh, there's an incredible amount of variation in sleep, even from night to night within the same week uh, in these places where I'm working. I mean, you would think that the the sun sets at the same time every night and sun rises at the same time every morning, but from day to day, there's a huge variation. And so what I've been kind of looking at in terms of opportunity costs is, well, if why does it vary so much? What are, what are people doing? And uh, the general framework I've been looking at is if you're responding to things that are happening in your environment that are very sporadic and unpredictable, then it may be a good thing to actually be able to respond to them. Certainly in terms of dangers like a, a house fire or what have you, um, is something you would want to wake up and deal with. It'd be much preferable to that sleeping through the fire. Um, and in the same way, I would say that, you know, if you sleep through a baby crying, that might be better for your sleep, but it's probably worse for the baby. Um, but there are also other things like if you're trying to get food and there's something, somebody else in your community comes home with a bunch of meat because they've been hunting at night, uh, that's a great opportunity to wake up and go get some <laughs> and socialize and, you know, hear whatever stories they have to tell. And so if, if that's kind of what was normal, quote unquote, whatever that means, if that's something that people could have been dealing with for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, then there may be some degree of flexibility into our own endogenous sleep regulation systems. Uh, that would have been shaped this way by these conditions over that period of time. And now, because we have that same kind of programming, when a new episode of Succession comes out, I mean, we're definitely going to stay up to watch it. I don't want to wait until morning. I want to watch it now. <laughs> and and new Harry Potter books. I mean, my God. Um, so uh, this is all fascinating stuff. And thank you so much, uh, Gandhi Yatish, a human evolutionary ecologist and anthropologist who studies sleep patterns among small-scale subsistence, subsistence societies. We're going to talk about animals in the next segment. I just want to say right now, because a lot of the people who listen to this show – their first question, because they listen to the show, is what about tapirs or tapirs? Um, well, Malayan tapirs are crepuscular, which means they are active at dawn uh, and at dusk, in the middle of the day and, and in the middle of the night they sleep. So you can try being a tapir for a couple of days, see if that works for you. Uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll tell you what's happening to animals who hibernate or maybe don't. I don't need no headaches or DTs. Dig these satchels underneath my eyeballs Now if I'm going to get rid of these I better get me some seeds I better get me some seeds I better get me some seeds Good And our technical producer today is Kat Pastor. Uh, the producer of this episode was the senior, is the senior producer uh, of the Colin McEnroe show, Lily Tyson, who's having trouble sleeping lately. That's another reason we're doing the show. But the other reason was this article I mentioned at the beginning that was in LitHub for some reason. But it's also a part of my experience. I was talking to uh, somebody the other day who, who, who said that, so I mean, as most of you know, 
here in Connecticut, bears are just kind of everywhere all the time. They're coming to your house. They play the piano. Uh, they do whatever they want to do. But the, this woman, woman was telling me that the, on LeMay Street in West Hartford, there was this bear who just spent the whole winter in a tree, like just just up there, just in the tree, not in a cave or anything like that. Uh, and that uh, they had named him LeMay and they would just say, hey, you want to drive over and look at LeMay for a while? He's up in a tree. Uh, so uh, then we read this article about, in fact, how bears are not necessarily hibernating these days. And then we started wondering about other animals. Uh, and of course, the first categorical mistake that we made is about to be corrected by Corey Williams, an associate professor in the Department of Biology at Colorado State University. So uh, when Lily Tyson and I were talking about this show, Lily said, well, I'd like the animals can't get any sleep either. We can't sleep. They can't sleep. Well, it turns out, and I didn't know this either, that it's a mistake to conflate hibernation and sleep. Corey Williams, tell us more about that. Yeah, so uh, hibernation and sleep are actually quite different. Uh, we know this from uh, studies using EEG. And uh, so with EEG, you can see uh, non-rapid eye movement sleep, and you can see uh, rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep in uh, humans and other animals. Uh, but when we look at hibernators, we see something that looks a little bit like non-rapid eye movement sleep as they enter hibernation, uh, but then their EEGs don't look similar similar at all to, uh, to REM sleep or non-REM sleep. So we think that these animals are actually not sleeping during hibernation. And when we look at small mammal hibernators, uh, they don't spend the entire winter um, with cold body temperature in this hypometabolic state. They warm themselves up every few weeks and they do this for about 24 hours. And it turns out what they do mostly during that 24 hours is sleep. So they might actually need to uh, periodically stop being hypometabolic just so they can go through these sleep processes. That's So stop hibernating and sleep a little bit so you can go back to hibernating. That's uh, that's not the way we had been thinking about it. We had the paradigm all wrong. So um, obviously sleep happens in the winter. There are some reasons for that, including the diminished amount of light, uh, significantly diminished in, in certain areas. But Along with that is cold. Uh, you're talking about that hypometabolic uh, state. So everything's getting warm. As I said earlier in the show, we're all living in equatorial societies right now. It's very, very warm. Um, what is that doing? You are uh, particularly stu studying Arctic ground squirrels. So tell us a little bit about what's going on with them. So Arctic ground squirrels are obligate hibernators. Uh, so they hibernate uh, every year. And even if you put them in, um, you know, unusual conditions, but you give them like an equatorial photo period and warm temperatures, they're still going to go through a, a period where they're trying to hibernate. Um, but other species uh, like bears, for instance, are really plastic in terms of their hibernation. So if they have sufficient food in particular, they often uh, won't hibernate uh, during uh, those winter months. And so if you look across, you know, the range that we find bears in, the more southern locations, bears won't hibernate at all, whereas in the more northern uh, locations, they're hibernating a lot. And so what we see with climate change is that uh, this changes temperature, of course, it also changes uh, resource availability. And so when there's more food around, uh, they're going to hibernate less. So there's also, for the ground squirrels, the difference between 
when the males get up and when the females get up, at least traditionally there is. And I don't want to violate the privacy of Arctic ground squirrels, uh, but we should just say that for the males, as I understand it, their testicles shrivel up in the fall and then they have to re- kind of regrow and redescend after hibernation. Corey? Yeah. So uh, this is actually true of a lot of mammals that are going to breed seasonally. Uh, they will go through what we call a, a, a seasonal puberty. So they're going through something akin to puberty each year. And in a hibernator, uh, they're doing that. Uh, they're initiating that latent hibernation and then immediately after hibernation stops. So what we see in ground squirrels is males actually hibernate uh, for a shorter interval and they end hibernation earlier because it takes them about a month to go through this puberty so that they're ready to mate with females uh, once they've finished hibernating. And what we're seeing with climate change is that females are actually ending hibernation earlier, whereas males are not. And so at the moment, that's not creating any issues. But as climate change continues, we expect that females will actually be ready to mate with males before those males are uh, sexually mature and able to mate with those females. Right. It's starting to feel like this whole show is about George Costanza. Now we're talking about shrinkage. But um, but yes, that could be a very awkward thing. <laughs> I just don't happen to be ready, honey, to make uh, any new squirrels quite yet. Um, so, I mean, levity aside, this has serious implications. And how much of a change are you seeing over how much of a period of time? It seems as though climate change is kind of accelerating the rate of what we might think of as you know, quote unquote, normal change within a species. Yeah. So over the last uh, 25 years, uh, females are now ending hibernation about uh, 10 days to two weeks earlier um, in response to climate change, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but um, it's actually a pretty meaningful difference in a pretty short amount of time. And the Arctic, of course, is warming faster than any other part of the globe. And so they're experiencing climate change at a much more rapid pace. So, yeah, I mean, that is a lot in a very short amount of time when you think about sort of the overall stability of a species normally. Um, So bears have an additional problem, right? Not only is it maybe not as cold, but bears are living much closer to us. Uh, Bears uh, are not necessarily tempted to use hibernation, not that they would think this out necessarily, but hibernation as a, um, a way of redressing food scarcity, well, like, we got food for them all the time. (laughs) All they have to do is find a garbage can. We don't stop putting the garbage out during the winter. I assume that's messing with the bears as well. Yeah, so access to food uh, can definitely influence hibernation. And so you've got two things that are happening. We're providing more food to them, so they're hibernating less. And then also under climate change, they might be hibernating less. And so they're interacting with humans more because they're spending less time in hibernation. So it's it's sort of this uh, circle that's happening where um, we are impacting the bears and then the bears in turn are having more conflict with humans. Right. And and we, we should say a little bit more about the other purposes of hibernation and maybe the differences between species. I mean, ground squirrels, as I understand it, have a somewhat more... I don't know, a programmed approach to hibernation than bears do. Like it's sort of 
makes sense when you think about it because maybe bear, ground squirrels don't want to be out where you know they can be eaten by other animals. But in other words, ground squirrels are going to try to essentially hibernate as long as they can. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it, it depends on the species, but ground squirrels in general are what we call obligate hibernators. So they have, yeah, very programmed hibernation. And then um, they have some plasticity in how long that hibernation is, but they're not nearly as flexible as other animals uh, like bears. But there's other small mammals as well that are also really flexible, um, uh, like some species of um, uh, chipmunks are highly flexible in terms of how much they hibernate. So uh, for the ground squirrels, is this going to have obvious consequences? Um, I mean, we talked about the sort of the reproductive thing, which could sort of just knock them a little bit off their game in, in that way. But are there other ways in which if ground squirrels continue to do what they're doing, if they start kind of coming out of hibernation earlier and earlier and earlier because of warming temperatures, are there other concerns for them because of this? Well, one way in which they can potentially be impacted is uh, by predators. So uh, as you mentioned before, they're relatively safe when they're hibernating. And so they have a higher survival rate during hibernation than they do uh, in what we call the active season. And so as the active season gets longer and hibernation gets shorter, uh, that can potentially have a negative impact. And these animals only breed one time per year. Um, so they're not capable of having a second litter or anything like that to make up for that survival loss. Yeah. And with the bears, let me just say, you know, everywhere around here in Connecticut, there's this understanding that you take your bird feeders in during the warm uh, months and then you can put them back out in the winter because the bears are hibernating. Well, if they're not hibernating, you may never be able to feed the birds or you might have just changed your metrics about that somehow. So we're learning, we're changing, and maybe not necessarily for the good. But Corey Williams, an associate professor in the Department of Biology at Colorado State University, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. And to the rest of you, stop worrying about how much you sleep and then go have a nap. <laughs>